Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we're going to look at verses 31 through verse 46. Matthew 26, verses 31 through verse 46. This morning as we come to God's Word, um, you know, I really... uh, as I was studying this, the more I got into it, I feel like there's really two sermons here and not just one. So we're going to try to fit them in to 30 minutes. So we might be here to about 1230, um, but hopefully not, all right? Don't scare anybody. But um, we're going to try to fit it in. But it's a powerful picture here. And let me, let me just start it this way. Any of you ever been in a situation where you, you say, God, boy, I'll never do that. Or, or God, I, I'm committed to you. You can count on me. And then a little later in your life, you found yourself in a place where, boy, you've made a mess. Maybe you've done what you thought you'd never do. And you thought, I'm done. This morning, we're going to see an individual who said, Lord, you can count on me. And he's going to make a mess. And God's not done with him. Maybe some of you are in this room this morning and you've been through a situation in your life. Maybe you're going through it right now, some trial, some situation that is so overwhelming you at this moment in your life that you're not even sure you can go on. This morning, I hope and pray that you'd be encouraged by a great high priest who's been where you've been. And maybe others of you this morning, you have... I found yourself in a situation where you've been crying out to God over and over again in your life, asking him to move maybe in a family member's life or in your own life, and you've been pleading to him, and you feel like all you've been getting back to God, from God is silence. Or maybe he's been leading in a different direction that you don't really want to go. I pray you'd be encouraged this morning. You've got a great high priest who's been where you've been powerful picture of the grace and the love of God in this passage and the great high priest who loves us. Let's end with that in mind. Let's just read this. I think we need to read it all together before we work our way through it. So begin with me in verse, we're going to back up verse 30. Read read verse 30 with me. It says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night for it's written, I'll strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. 
And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would never get over the fact that you have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us who you are and how we're to react and respond to you by means of your very word. And we know today that it is living and it is active. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would speak to us in the study of it. And having heard from you, I pray that we would not simply be hearers, but we would be doers also. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, really, two sections that I want us to point out in this text. First of all, I want us to see the self-reliance of Peter. The the self-reliance of Peter. You see there in verse 31, Jesus makes the declaration that you're all going to fall away from me. And I think that prior to this, they probably all felt a little bit of a sense of relief as, as Judas has gone out from them. You'll remember, he says, one of you is going to betray me at the last Passover. And they're all wondering, is it I? They're probably thinking, could it be me? And they're doing some self-introspection and a little worried. Maybe I would be the one. But now having uh, Judas gone from them, I think they probably all felt a little bit of relief. Well, <laughs> it wasn't me. But then Jesus, in the midst of their relief, which was very short-lived, he declares to them, you're all going to fall away from me on this night. And then he says, it's going to happen in accordance with Scripture. And he quotes from Zechariah, and it says, I'll strike down uh, the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered declaration, a prophecy from Zechariah. And it's important to, important to remember, who's the I in that in that. Um, in, in that in, uh, Old Testament passage. Who's the I? The I is who? It's God. And who is the shepherd? We know him to be the good shepherd. Who is the shepherd? The shepherd is Jesus. And, and, and we don't want to gloss over this. We mentioned it last week. But by means of that passage in other places, who is responsible for the death of Jesus? God the Father. Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him. So God has declared, I'm going to strike down Jesus, my son, and the sheep of the flock. Now, who are the sheep? In the Old Testament, a lot of times when it references the sheep, that's talking about who? It's talking about Israel. But here, who do we know it's talking about? Talking about the disciples. God is saying, I'm going to strike down Jesus, the shepherd, the son, and his disciples are all going to tuck tail and run. But then look at what it says, because this to me is probably my favorite part in verse 32. But I'll go ahead of you to Galilee, and I'll meet you there. I'm going to go ahead, knowing what you're going to do. This to me is amazing. Jesus is looking right at his disciples and saying, listen, every one of you is going to deny me. Every one of you is going to make a mess. But it's okay, I still love you. And I'm going to go ahead of you, and we're going to meet back up. And I don't know about you, but that spoke great words of encouragement into my life this week that God would look to me as well and say, listen, I know everything about you. I know every mess you've already made. I know every mess you're going to make in the future, but it's okay. I still love you, and you can't run away from me. And we'll meet back up, and I desire to use you. A powerful picture of God's love, Christ's love. What kind of friend is this who knows 
all that we'll do, and yet says, I still love you and I'll meet up with you. When I was in Uganda, we, we were worshiping with um, a group of pastors from South Sudan, Darfur, uh, Sudan, Uganda. They had gathered at the seminary, uh, Northeast Africa Theological Seminary, NEETS is what they call it. And these pastors were gathered. We got to worship with them. It was one of my uh, favorite memories from the trip. And there we were worship, worshiping, and they sang this hymn that I had never heard before, which I've heard a lot of hymns. I've been in the church a long time, but I love this. They were singing together and knowing some of these guys had been converted from a Muslim background, come to faith in Christ. Now they're being trained up to be sent out as pastors. And they were singing this hymn called, There's Not a Friend Like the Lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. What a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. So Jesus says, you're all going to be falling away. You're, you're all going to let me down. You're all going to deny me. You're all going to betray me. But it's okay. I'm going to meet back up with you. Well, what is the response of Peter? In verse 33, Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because you all never fall away. Peter says, these other guys, I'm not sure about them, Jesus. They may let you down, but not me. You can count on me, Jesus. Remember, I'm the rock. I'm the leader. I won't let you down. I can almost imagine James and John rolling their eyes. He's throwing us under the bus again. There he goes. And what is the response of Jesus? Verse 34, Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. He says, Peter, you're not even going to make it through the day. You're not even going to make it through the night without betraying me, denying you even know me in the presence of a servant girl. You're going to deny me. What's the response of Peter? He's undeterred. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. No, no humility, no hesitation. He says, no way, Jesus, you are dead wrong. It's the second time that Peter has corrected Jesus. You remember the first time, Matthew 16, Jesus says, I'm going to go away, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And Peter takes him aside, hey, you've got to cut out this dying stuff. Ain't nobody dying around here, all right? No crucifixion. You've got to cut it out with that. And you remember what was Jesus' response to Peter in that situation? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus knew in that moment, Satan was behind Peter's coercion of Jesus to stay away from the cross. And here, even in this instance, what does Jesus know? He knows that Satan is behind this as well. But you got to go to Luke's gospel to find it. But in Luke twenty two thirty one, 31, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And you, once you've turned again, will strengthen your brothers. I love it in that where he, he, come, he doesn't call him Peter, does he? At that moment, he's not the rock. He says, Peter... You're not as strong as you think you are, brother. And you're about to get shaken by Satan. But I've prayed to you that your faith will not fail. And once you've turned again, you'll be strengthened. Peter had a problem. And Peter's problem was not sincerity. I think Peter was sincere as he could possibly be. Uh, in fact, he, he's so sincere, in just, a, in just a little while, he's going to try to take on a hundred soldiers with just one little dagger. Make no mistake about it, he's incredibly sincere. His problem is not sincerity, his problem is self-reliance. 
His problem is that Peter doesn't know Peter. And Peter's problem, really, it's our problem too. Peter, you don't know Peter. And Jesus says in verse 41, you remember as he comes back and they're sleeping, he says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And a lot of, a lot of discussion about what that passage, what that verse means but I think it's pretty plain what Jesus is saying. Peter, you got great intentions. You got a good heart. I know the spirit of what you're saying here. But you're not as strong as you think you are, Peter. See, I've often said that Christianity is first and foremost a great awareness of what you are not. That you and I are not that strong. You and I are not that wise. You and I are not that mighty. You and I are not autonomous. You and I are not independent. We can't do this on our own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Christianity is not just difficult. It is impossible apart from the grace and strength of Jesus Christ. And so here's Peter. <laughs> you can count on me. Yet what do we know? He's going to make a mess. He's going to fall. And we need to be reminded of, of this this morning. None of us are immune you can never reach some plateau of spirituality where you all of a sudden become immune to the temptations and the snares of Satan. There is no degree of sin that any of us cannot fall into except for the sustaining power of the grace of God. Did you hear that this morning? There's no degree of sin that any of us cannot fall into apart from the sustaining power of the grace of God. If David could become a murderer and adulterer and Peter could become a betrayer, you better be careful before you say, I will never do that. The minute you start thinking you got it on your own and you can do it is the moment you're about to step on a spiritual banana peel and make a mess of your life. And it's a good reminder, too. I, boy, we need to be careful because a lot of times we see people in our life, we see them fall, fall into messes. And sometimes if we're not careful in some judgmental ways, we start saying, boy, I can't believe they did that. Boy, I'd never do that. When you know what our heart ought to be, but by the grace of God, so go I. You're not above it either. Well, here's what self-reliance does. This is the, the symptom, of, the ultimate symptom of a self-reliant heart is that you will neglect prayer. If you have a self-reliant heart, if you think too highly of yourselves, then oftentimes you will spend too little time in prayer. If you're depending upon yourself, then oftentimes you will neglect depending upon God in prayer. And that's exactly what we see happening in verses 36 through 45. Peter, James, and John, they go with Jesus into Gethsemane. He takes them in a little further. He asks them to pray and keep watch. Which, by the way, as I was studying this, as far as I can tell, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus asks his guys to do something for his own personal benefit. He just asks his guys, will you pray for me? 
Well, he asks them to pray. He goes away and prays. He comes back. They're sleeping. He speaks directly to Peter. So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying. He goes away a second time. Comes back again. They're sleeping again. Goes away a third time. Comes back. They're sleeping again. He says, are you still sleeping? It's too late. The, the betrayers come. You see, when you think too highly of yourself, you'll spend too little time in prayer. Self-reliance always leads to a lack of dependence upon God in prayer. And I am very aware you do not need another sermon on prayer. You don't need another exhortation to pray. We got a whole lot of in Scripture. I know that when I preach on prayer, we all feel guilty. I've never run into a person who says to me, Pastor, I've been praying too much. I'm wasting all my time in prayer. I think all of us would say this morning that, that we need to pray more. But here's what I know. It's not until you realize that you are completely and totally dependent upon God that you will put prayer in its proper place of priority. Until you realize that your need of God is not partial, it is total, you will not pray like you should. See, when we don't pray, you know what we're saying? God, I got this. You know what we're saying? We're saying just what Peter said. You can count on me, God. I can do it on my own. When what do we know? Apart from God's sustaining power, we will fall flat on our faces. I encounter people all the time, Christians who are shot down in everything, all these areas of their life, and they do everything except pray and and, Satan doesn't mind if you do all kinds of personal work. He does not, Satan does not mind even if you study your Bible so long as you don't pray because he knows if you just study your Bible and don't pray, the best that will happen is you'll just become spiritually prideful. It's when we pray that we connect with God and we know his power in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our ministries. And Satan knows it's possible to be very active, but accomplish nothing when we don't pray. I love what Ronnie Floyd often says, God can do more in a moment than you can do in a lifetime. But you know what we often demonstrate by our lack of prayer is we think we can do more than God. God, we can do it on our own. And if you look at this, Jesus is the ultimate example. Because if there's anybody that ever walked the face of the earth that didn't need to pray, it was Christ who also always knew perfect intimacy with the Father. And yet every time the disciples turned around, what was Jesus doing? He had gone away somewhere to pray. At Mark chapter 1, busy day of ministry. He does all this work preaching. He does miracles, all kinds of ministry. And it says he got up early the next morning before day and he went, went away to do what? To pray. And Peter wakes up a little late, and he's looking around. He can't find Jesus. He leads a search party. we got to go find him. And where does he find him? He finds him praying. Not until we realize that we are totally dependent upon God will we put prayer in its proper place. Did Peter learn his lesson, by the way? Oh, yeah, he did. You get over to Acts. <laughs> what is the church always doing? Everything the church does is bathed in what? It's bathed in prayer. They are always praying, and it's through the prayers of the church that the power of God is demonstrated. And it's Peter who will later write, uh, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. Be on alert, for the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Boy, Peter learned his lesson, didn't he? And he tells them this. He says, listen, 
I'm telling you from a person who has learned, you better be on alert because you got Satan out there trying to take you down and your only hope is to connect to God through power of prayer. Humble yourselves. Don't think too highly of yourself. All right. We got seven minutes to hit this second passage, all right? We've seen the self-reliance of Peter. Let's look at the submission of Christ. The submission of Christ. You see in this passage, and, and we're just going to touch on it a little bit this morning. As we move closer to the cross, you're going to see it over and over again. You're going to see both the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ mingled together, both glorifying God and, and really accentuating the sacrifice that Christ is going to make. And you can't diminish either one. Oftentimes we diminish the humanity of Christ over against his deity and we don't fully appreciate what he's done. Sometimes we accentuate his humanity over his deity and we don't fully appreciate what he's done. We gotta see both and you see them both in this. Look with me at verses 38 through 39. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. So the nature, the nature of this trial that he's about to experience is so great and so overwhelming that Jesus physically falls on the ground to pray. And you gotta remember that the normal posture of prayer for a Jewish man was to stand. They, they prayed standing with their palms up and their gaze towards heaven and they'd pray. So he's not getting in the posture of prayer here. To me, this is a picture of Christ so overwhelmed physically by the nature of what he's about to endure that he falls face on the ground and he prays. The reality of the situation is about to sink in. And don't mishear me, Jesus is not surprised by this. He's omniscient, he's God, he knows what's coming. He knows full well that he came to die. He knows this moment is coming. But at this moment, the magnitude and the reality overwhelms him as he's in the garden. The garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane means olive crush. And Jesus is about to be crushed for our iniquities. And the weight of the moment overwhelms him. You know, some of you know what it is to have a surgery that you calendar out, you put it out there a month. And as long as it's out there a month, it's not that big of a deal. But when you get a few days out and they send you the paperwork, you gotta go for the pre-check, all of a sudden it becomes real, doesn't it? That's kind of what Christ is experiencing here. Although it breaks down, doesn't it? Because he's God and he knows everything. He knows exactly, we don't know what's coming. He knows exactly what's coming. And Jesus isn't just going in for surgery, is he? The weight of the trial that he's about to endure is that he's about to bear the weight of the guilt for our sins. That he's about to, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And he knows the Father cannot look upon sin. He knows that by bearing this weight of our guilt, that it will mean separation between him and the Father. He knows full well what is coming. You know, oftentimes when we think of what Christ is going to endure, we, we really focus in on the physical aspect of his pain. I think the physical aspect of this was minimal in comparison to the spiritual and the emotional weight of what he's about to endure and the danger as we come to this is that we would <laughs> diminish the agony and the distress of Christ in this moment and we might say well yeah I know it's tough but he's God but remember he's also fully man he is very God and he is very man he is fully God and he's fully man 
And as a man, he recoils at the thought of what he's about to endure. The best comparison, that it, how to illustrate this was so difficult, but try to think of comparison. Imagine if you were going to be tried, publicly tried and convicted as a murderer of children, even though you were innocent. You'd done nothing wrong, but you were going to be publicly tried and publicly convicted as a murderer. And you would have to stand there as your wife or as your husband and as your children looked on and saw you convicted and tried as a murderer. And you couldn't say a word. And then your family watched as you were strapped to a cross and killed and publicly humiliated as a criminal and as a murderer. But you had done nothing wrong and you couldn't say a word. That's about as close as we could get. And yet that falls short in so many ways. You know, as I, as I think about this, as I mentioned earlier, some of you, some of you are going through trials the likes of which I can't even begin to understand. And some of you today, I know this, there's some people that are probably in this room or watching online and you're going through something at this very moment that is the, the weight of it is so great you don't even know if you can go on another day. And I hope and pray your heart would be encouraged by the knowledge of knowing you have a great high priest who's been where you've been. And if we're not careful, sometimes as Christians, what we'll do, we'll see a person who's so overwhelmed by a trial and we'll say in our hearts, buck up, camper, come on. And we might begin to think, well, if they were a good Christian, you mean a good Christian like Jesus? Because Jesus got overwhelmed by trial and he hid his face in prayer. And if that's you this morning, I hope and pray you know you've got a great high priest who loves you and he sympathizes with your weakness and you know what he's doing today? He's constantly making intercession for you to the Father. That's a powerful thought. Well, what does Jesus pray in verse 39? My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. Let this cup. The cup is, is, is often in Scripture connected with the wrath of God. We see this in, in Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51, Revelation 14. The cup is associated with the wrath of God. That Jesus on the cross is about to drink the full cup of God's wrath. All the wrath of God, all the anger of God, all the fury of God towards the sin of man, all the evil acts that have ever been performed, all the evil thoughts and, and impure deeds and impure thoughts, all the sins that have ever committed, all the fury and anger of God towards those sins is about to be poured out on Jesus Christ as he dies for us. We can't even begin to fathom the magnitude of what he's about to endure. That he is about to drink the full cup of God's wrath so that you and I wouldn't have to. And what this passage tells us, what we find out here is that as a man, it wasn't something that he was excited about. That the prospect of bearing the full weight of God's just wrath towards sin was not the desire of Christ. And there's some people who will say, well, this wasn't a real request. Oh, listen. It was more real than you and I could possibly fathom. He prays, if possible, let this come, if possible. And there's people who say, well, he's God. Doesn't he know it's not possible? Yes, but listen to me. 
This is where we err, is when we start diminishing either his humanity or his deity. He is fully man. Does he know? Yes. But as a man, his submission to Christ is never fully accentuated until we realize that as a man, he recoils from the prospect of bearing the weight of your sin so that you could have salvation. And some people will say, well, how in the world can this be submission if it's not something that he wanted to do? Folks, the beauty of this comes in seeing that his submission to the will of God is set within the context of his own personal desires. The beauty of his submission is accentuated in the fact that while he desired to have the cup passed before him, he he decided instead to drink it because it was the will of God. It's a beautiful picture of what submission really is. Submission to God doesn't mean that we don't have our own desires. But it means that in all our prayers, as we express our desires to God, at the heart of all of our requests is the ability to say, God, but it's really not about my will, it's about yours. And boy, some of you know what that feels like. Say, God, I want this, I don't desire to do this, or I want to do this. And I want to see you move. But God, it's not about what I want. And I know your will is best. That's the beauty of Christ's submission to the will of God. You notice that when Christ makes this request, there's only silence. The heart of his prayer is, God, is there any other way? And there's only silence from heaven. Why? Because there is no other way. There is no such thing as a crossless Christianity. There is no such thing as a crossless salvation. You see, the picture of Old Testament Passover in that lamb was either the lamb dies or you die. And what we see in Christ, who is the fulfillment of that picture and that symbol, is that either Christ bears the full weight of God's wrath on the cross or you and I bear the full weight of God's wrath in a place called hell. And boy, if this doesn't express to you God's love for you today, nothing ever will. That here is the perfect Lamb of God who has never known into anything but intimacy with the Father, who's always been perfectly obedient, and yet he would decide against his own personal desires. He would decide and willingly submit himself to Father's plan and die on a cross to bear the weight of your sin and your guilt so that you and I could know the salvation of Christ. And if that doesn't overwhelm your heart this morning, something is wrong with you. The world, they, they wonder why. <laughs> it, when you think about it, in, in a worldly perspective, it does kind of seem on. We love the cross, don't we? The cross is a form of execution. We wear it around our necks. We put it on the walls of our homes and in our sanctuaries. We love the cross. We sing songs about the blood of Jesus. And the worldly sense says, that's odd. 
Why do we cherish the cross? Why do we love the blood? Because we know if Christ doesn't die on that cross and his blood's not shed, we are without hope and we are condemned to die. We sometimes sing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Love so amazing, love so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray together. God, I pray this morning that if there's anybody here that doesn't know your salvation, that God, they would be so overwhelmed by the love demonstrated in Christ who willingly submitted himself to your will and died for our sins. I, I pray that the, the beauty of Christ's love was so overwhelming that they couldn't help but run to you for salvation and forgiveness. Maybe they've never thought about the guilt of their sin. Maybe they've never thought about the wrath of God, of a holy God towards sin. God, I pray that you would show them their sin, but most importantly, I pray that you'd show them the beauty of their Savior Jesus who died for them. I pray that they would run to you. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that all of us would be encouraged this morning that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. He knows our troubles, but he didn't come just to just to show us how to get through our troubles, he came to deal with our troubles. He came to deal with our sin on the cross. God, I pray that we would draw encouragement from knowing he loves us and he's interceding on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your forgiveness. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Christ, how you can know his salvation today, how you can know his freedom and his forgiveness. We'll, we'll have pastors here at the front who would love to talk with you, love to pray with you. Maybe you've got some issue in your life and you feel a bit overwhelmed this morning. Uh, they, these pastors would love to pray with you. You can pray here at the front. You can pray right where you're at. In whatever way God is moving in your heart this morning, listen, you'll, you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.